Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Evan Burnick, Executive Director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution and Visiting Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center. We will discuss his article, Eliminating Constitutional Law, which will be published in the South Dakota Law Review. So welcome back to the show, Evan. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, it's a it's a pleasure to have you back on. I always love reading your papers and and talking to you about them. And I understand that you have some big career news. Uh, yes, uh, come this fall, I will be starting as an assistant professor at Northern Illinois University College of Law, where I'll be teaching criminal law, criminal procedure, and uh, come the spring, constitutional law. I can't wait to get started. Amazing! Congratulations. Well, that's great news for you. Thanks. And a big get for for NIU. So uh, I'm sure everyone's delighted. So not to beat around the bush, let's let, let's talk a little bit about this this paper, which I think is really well done, a uh, fascinating read, quite provocative, and to be perfectly blunt, packs an awful lot into a relatively small amount of space. To get listeners situated, I mean, I wonder if you could tackle a a small question that came to mind for me, which is, what is law anyway, right? What are we talking about when we talk about law? And do people agree about what law is? Uh, They do not agree about what law is or even how we would go about answering the question of what law is. Um, the study of what law is goes under the heading of jurisprudence, and everything that I'm describing here comes under the specific subheading of analytical jurisprudence. These are accounts of what the law is. However, how one goes about determining what the law is might, according to some accounts, depend upon identifying some essential properties that all law, as law, has in much the same way that we would identify Um, H2O is constituting the essential properties of water. And then there are others that take a different approach to what's called the the demarcation problem and say, look, we don't need a theory of essential properties. We can fall back on family resemblances, things that seem to distinguish legal norms from norms in other domains like games, religious rituals, and other normative systems. How would you kind of characterize the big picture approaches that people take to talking about what law is or kind of how they characterize what we should be doing when we want to go about defining what law is? So we can broadly distinguish between positivist and non-positivist theories of law. Positivists characteristically hold that what the law is, is dictated by authoritative sources that public officials recognize and consider themselves obligated to follow. Non-positivists tend to argue that law as law has to have certain moral features or moral content baked into it before we can dignify it with the name of law. Within non-positivism, you have what are broadly considered natural law theories, um, including the theories of uh, John Finnis and Mark Murphy, uh, and to an extent, Lon Fuller, and arguably Ronald Dworkin, although he never really announced himself as a natural lawyer. But the big dispute is whether law as such has to have certain moral content 
or whether it not only does not, but perhaps cannot, if you go with the strong, hard, hard positivist view of Joseph Raz and more recently Scott Shapiro. So in your paper, you're focusing specifically on, on constitutional law. Does, does constitutional law present particular or unique problems in relation to this question of what is law and how should we think about law from a normative perspective? In other words, is, is constitutional law a kind of law or is it something different? Constitutional law presents particularly problems in degree uh, with respect to identifying whether it's law or not, simply because it is so fiercely contested. There are so many approaches that are considered permissible to the degree that one would not say one is breaking the rules by taking one or the other approach, whether originalism or non-originalism or a variety of non-originalism. Um, but in recent years, uh, there have been scholars who have made arguments to the effect that um, our constitutional law does require certain things of public officials. The most influential such view to this point really is Will Bode and Steve Sachs's claim that the original meaning of the Constitution is part of our law because public officials consistently, and particularly judges, say it is, and they act accordingly. And they infer from that that there is a meaningful sense in which public officials ought to follow original meaning, although the force of this ought is somewhat difficult to determine. Why do you think, why do you think that's a problem? I mean, maybe you could expand on the claim that they're making and that others have made relatedly uh, on slightly different grounds and, and talk a little bit about what you think they're missing or what, what their theory doesn't take into account. Right. So there is a, really a lot does turn upon what they consider the force of the officials ought to follow original meaning to be. There is a trivial sense in which we could uh, criticize public officials for simply not playing by the rules in the same way that we might criticize somebody who participates in a chess tournament and breaks the rules of chess that are applicable in that setting. Uh, but we might go further than that. We might say not only have they broken the rules, but they are in some sense morally blameworthy for having broken the rules. And they might have a moral obligation to do something other than break the rules, namely follow original meaning. Um, and that view, I think, has serious problems because if positivists like Bode and Sachs are right about the nature of law, law doesn't carry sufficient moral force to justify a general claim that public officials ought to follow it. You can have very evil legal systems uh, that satisfy what are known as Hardian requirements for uh, positive law. And to the extent that that's true, you need to rely upon something other than legality to generate an obligation on the part of public officials to do as the law requires. You need to say democracy demands it. You need to say a promise to do this uh, thing or follow these rules, regardless of whether law, uh, whether they are law is binding, or you can say that there are certain coordination associated benefits that come from an operational legal system. And Bode in particular does raise some of these arguments. Um, the point that I try to make in response is that there's nothing about legality as such that makes those arguments any stronger. If social coordination is beneficial or keeping promises is beneficial or democracy is beneficial, it doesn't really depend upon the nature of law that those benefits accrue to following original meaning, as he understands it. So how do they try to make the connection 
between law and that ought question, those social benefits that they think flow from it. I mean, if you were going to kind of make out the best case for their argument that it it does in some way flow from legality, what would you point to? Or what do you, what do you think they try to point to? So I want to distinguish at this point between Bode and Sachs because I have a sense that they see matters somewhat differently. Uh, Bode suggests two possible arguments uh, drawing upon the expressly normative work of Richard Ray for following original meaning. First, he says that all public officials take a promise to follow the law and follow the Constitution. And as a consequence, they put themselves under an obligation that they would not otherwise have. Second, he says that because uh, judges are entrusted with with whatever power they have as a consequence of democratic consensus, uh, democracy counsels in favor of following the rules that condition their elevation to power. I think both of those are plausible normative arguments. It's just that there's nothing about them that depends upon positivism or non-positivism being true. Judges promise to follow the Constitution. It doesn't matter whether the Constitution is law uh, in order for us to say that they have an obligation to follow the thing that they promised to follow. And the same thing is true of the claim about democracy. You can say that judges may have positional obligations as a consequence of being elevated to office or that um, democratic consensus has elevated them to a particular position. But if it so happens that the Constitution, those processes don't uh, correspond to our best theory of law, I think that Bode could still make the same positional and promissory arguments and democratic arguments that he makes to the effect that judges should still follow original meaning because it captures whatever goods are associated with promises and democracy uh, and um, any positional obligations that are associated with the roles that they take on. So would it be fair to say then that the argument is something really more along the lines of this methodological approach is good, therefore it should be followed? Right. And I don't think that uh, it is actually possible to, and I'm you know, open to refutation on this point, articulate a strong ought argument for any particular methodology that does not ultimately depend upon certain benefits accruing from following it. And to the extent that that's true, it would be easier and less confusing to simply argue that if you follow that my methodology, it will produce these goods, rather than engaging in this threshold debate about the nature of law. I think we can have everything that positivists and natural lawyers who argue for originalism and non-originalism want to have at the level of debate without getting bogged down in this initial threshold jurisprudential question. Well, so how, if at all, are the kind of natural law theories uh, attempting to justify particular methodological approaches to constitutional law different from the kind of positivist approach that you just described? So the first thing that they do, and here I focus primarily on Jeff Pajanowski and Kevin Walsh. Uh, we can get into Adrian Vermeule and non-originalist alternatives um, uh, separately. They start by attacking the idea that there's any obligation to follow the law if you are a positivist like Bogue. And I think that their arguments to that effect are generally, um, are generally strong and convincing. They go on, however, to argue that they have a a normatively thicker conception of law that can underwrite obligation to follow the original Constitution. Drawing upon the work of John Finnis, a natural lawyer, although um, 
one who has certain uh, idiosyncrasies that make his legacy a little bit complicated. He argues that central cases of law, laws, law that exemplifies law's distinctive moral functions, create moral obligations to follow their dictates. And Pojanowski and Walsh say that we have in the original constitution a central case of law. So the case for the original problem in the original constitution is that it performs these moral functions well. It delivers certain substantive goods, including social coordination that comes with resolving issues that are unsettled by natural law. And what I argue is that nothing about this case for originalism really turns upon any theory of the nature of, of law. Uh, Pojo and Walsh could be wrong about the nature of law, and their moral argument for originalism could still carry the day. Um, to concretize that, suppose you can have a truly evil central case of law. If that's true, the fact that a given regime is a central case of law can't underwrite any moral obligation. But it might still be the case that the original constitution is reasonably just and capable of underwriting moral obligations. And if it is, and if there's no reasonably available better moral alternative, it seems like we ought to follow the original constitution, even if there's no obligation to follow central cases of law. So then I come back to the same point that I made with respect to Bode. Um, there are uh, arguments to the effect that one should follow a methodology that will deliver the goods as one conceives the goods. It's just that you don't need to have a threshold inquiry into the nature of law in order to make the kinds of arguments they want to make. So, so I take it your objection to Vermeule to the extent that we know at this point what his theoretical approach is going to be is, is similar to that as well. Right. So Adrian Vermeule and others have argued for a non-originalist common good constitutionalism on natural law grounds. And I'll tread carefully because I know Adrian's at work on a book that will flesh his theory out, and I've only got a couple of essays and blog posts and also a very useful primer on common good uh, constitutionalism by Connor Casey. But if I understand him correctly, Adrian's common good constitutionalism tracks a methodology that Ronald Dworkin most fully articulated in Justice for Hedgehogs. And this methodology holds that law is a branch of morality and that legal decisions are really just contextually situated moral decisions. If there's any space between what the later Dworkin thought ought to be done in a given case and what all things considered morality in a legal setting required, I've yet to see it. I think that Adrian is on the wrong page. So I ask, suppose Dworkin and Adrian are wrong about the nature of law. Most jurisprudence do think that Dworkin is wrong. Uh, does it really matter to Adrian's case for common good constitutionalism? I don't think it does. It seems perfectly available to Adrian to say, regardless of what you think about the nature of law, morality supports my methodology over competing uh, constitutional methodologies. So it seems to me that talking as if the nature of law lends support to common good constitutionalism is a mistake. Okay, so if these theories are arguing for a kind of moral duty to adopt particular methodological approaches to constitutional laws is wrong, What's the right thing to do? Like, how do you think we should be approaching this problem differently? So I think that we need to forthrightly confront every morally relevant reason for choosing a methodology, one methodology rather than another, without regard to whether one of those legal, uh, relevant reasons can be classified as legal or other. Um, so this definition is compatible with deontological consequentialists and virtue ethical accounts of morality. The choice between constitutional methodologies should be based on your best account of what people in a given constitutional setting ought all things considered to do. 
Um, determining whether you have that account may require some abstraction and idealization, but the general prescription is, is the same. Um, and I hasten to add that you can do this without coming to the conclusion that in every given case, you should ask yourself what is morally best to do. You might, uh, with reference to the initial co- your choice of initial constitutional methodology, say, look, the best way to ensure that I get a morally optimal results is not deciding moral issues on a case-by-case basis, but adopting generally applicable norms that will govern me and constrain me across cases even when I'm tempted to deviate in the name of morality. And I would also emphasize that there's nothing about this approach that says you should disregard statutory text or judicial opinions or anything like that. All of those things will be relevant um, to uh, your determination of what you ought to do. There just isn't any initial stage in which you say, uh, when choosing your constitutional theory or even necessarily in an individual case, what does the law or the nature of law require? It, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that it's at least possible that what we should say is that constitutional law isn't law, but maybe it's best if we pretend like it's law. Right. So this is the issue. This is a you know a, an issue that may only particularly strike a chord with strong consequentialists. Uh, there might be a sense in which maybe it would be justified to perpetuate this myth that there is such a thing called law in order to ensure that people generally comply with rules that generally do, uh, if followed, capture certain moral goods. So we're morally obliged to lie to people about the law for the sake of morality. And I argue that that is not a particularly plausible approach to take because it really depends upon an incredible amount of epistemic arrogance on the parts of the people who are, you know, guardians of this secret. They think that they can determine without influence or, you know, consultation with the proles whether we ought to lie to everybody about the existence of an entity that doesn't exist for their own good. Um, So I argue that if we really don't have something that answers to the concept of law, we should strongly presume, if not conclusively presume, that we should tell the public about it and we should have deliberation and debate and discussion rather than, you know, uh, kind of free riding on this goodwill that is associated with a concept that actually answers to nothing in the world as we know it. What would this look like in practice? Like, what kind of factors do you think we ought to take into account? I mean, just for example, in deciding what a kind of methodological approach to deciding the questions we now call questions of constitutional law should look like in practice. Are we already doing them or should we be doing something differently? So if the realists are right, we are already doing this in wide areas of constitutional law. The essential realist insight was to determine that there are areas of law in which broadly broadly understood positivist resources don't tell judges what to do. And within that zone, they are ultimately deciding what to do on the basis of all things considered judgments that are not dictated by the law. 
And if that's true, then at least in those zones, eliminativism wouldn't really change much. It would just make things a little bit clearer about what's actually going on. Um, But more broadly, okay, so let's say that even beyond that setting, say we have wide, wide, wide areas of law in which we really don't have law. What should we do? Um, I am not of the opinion that we should do case-by-case judgment that involves trying to gather together all the relevant reasons and making a decision on the basis of those reasons. I think we should, and this is you know kind of a formalist disposition that I have, or a deontological disposition at the level of morality, the idea that certain norms really do capture valuable things about the world, and they are important to ensure that we have the kind of social coordination that will allow a legal system to function. Um, However, I can't foreclose the possibility that that's actually not the right way to go. And I think that what uh, official actors ultimately have to do is decide this for themselves. Um, An eliminativist judge of any kind, I don't think, is going to ignore statutory texts, judicial opinions, or other materials that are regarded by the formalist as sources of law. They're just not going to think that any of those materials are privileged because they're law. They're not going to first determine what the law requires and then to determine whether to do something else. Okay, what are they going to do? They're going to take into consideration all of the reasons that are morally relevant to the decision that they're making, legal, institutional, political, everything. And they're going to apply a framework that they consider to be morally optimal under the circumstances. It looks a lot like Dworkin's, um, later Dworkin's picture of what judges are already doing, which is... Um, instead of making an initial determination of what the law requires and then deciding what to do, they take into account everything that's relevant, including continuity with the law across time and precedence and integrity across cases. And then they say, okay, what is the right answer? And that right answer they call law. That is kind of a, you know, a an, an act eliminativism approach that it would be different from my preferred like rule based elimin- approach under eliminativism, but it's not an option that I can just foreclose out of hand. The you know comparative benefits of rules versus standards. This is an enduring debate um, that I can't pretend to resolve in this paper, but I just want to flag the possibility that if we really are in that world um, where there is nothing that answers to the concept of law. We can't have discussions about the choice between rules and standards as the choice between law and not law. We have a discussion about the differences between rules and standards and what makes one better than the other, consistent with the setting in which we are making these decisions. Do you you think people will like this, like broadly speaking, if judges start not only doing this in practice, but say that that's what they're doing in in their opinions and in their public statements. In other words, is like, is this something people want? And do you anticipate there being positive or negative reactions kind of from the public? And does it matter? Does it matter? Uh, Well, it matters to the extent that you care about the consequences of adopting a particular approach or theory of law and put it into practice, which uh, I think you ultimately should. Um, You know, there's been an enduring frustration, particularly in the academic community, with um, judicial confirmation hearings in which judges or aspiring judges piously recite things about the law and what they will be doing if elevated to their office that just everybody knows is not true. 
And yet it keeps happening. And by everyone, I mean broadly members of the legal community who know that a lot of these spaces of law are indeterminate. But they keep doing it, which suggests that there is some democratic function that the pretense that one ought to follow, that one is going to just be following the law performs. And I can't say, look, that stuff should just be totally dismissed because this is nonsense. And what's really going on is that in politically salient cases, judges are making decisions on the basis of not law. Um, at the same time, I think that there, and I, you know, I generally think that most people who hold the view that I've just articulated also don't think that judges should announce that they are not going to be following the law, but only following their political priors. Um, this is the kind of question that really does go uh, speak to the all things considered case for eliminativism that I do stress that I do not make in this article and really does require more developments and thinking about the constant, the um, the uh, you know, the sources of not only the um, the court's uh, moral legitimacy, whether it can all be whether it's all considered uh, justified, but it's sociological legitimacy, which is the question of whether people will tolerate whatever it's doing at a good uh, given time. Um, Put simply, it might be the case that the court would be morally justified in taking an approach to the law um, that is not morally optimal because people simply just wouldn't tolerate that approach, even if it did reflect reality. Um, these are very complicated, uh, you know, for, uh, second order questions about the effects of, of taking an approach to the law. And all I can say is that there are, I think that there, that the, uh, that the idea that I've articulated here is, is, will be generative. And I intend to explore it in, in future work. So I couldn't help but wondering, I mean, in this paper, you're talking about eliminativism in relation to constitutional law. Do you, do you think it's really limited in that way, or could or does it apply more broadly to law in general, and maybe just kind of manifest itself in outcomes differently depending on the area mm-hmm. of law as social practice that you're looking at? With respect to that, I'll say that the best case for a strong eliminativism that slices across areas of law and covers everything turns upon complexity and specialization, and it's been, elimin- uh, lab- it's been elaborated by Lewis Kornhauser. So cultural anthropology tells us that as societies get increasingly complex and specialized, they tend to formalize. Instead of implicit norms, we have explicit norms codified in rules. But once you hit a certain level of complexity and specialization, it may not make much sense to think or speak as if there's a single norm that governs the decisions of public officials. And that what we instead have is a set of interlocking institutions, texts, and expectations across, you know, every area of law that stands the prospect of getting litigated to the appellate level, and perhaps even at a lower level than that. So he offers the example of a, a police officer, a prosecutor, and a judge. All apply the criminal code. Each responds, however, to the criminal code differently. The police officer can make an arrest even if they had insufficient evidence for conviction, or they can choose not to make an arrest even if they have sufficient evidence, there's no well-defined legal norm that tells them what to do. And the same goes for a prosecutor deciding whether to prosecute. Their decision will be influenced by their beliefs about what the criminal code says, but it'll also be influenced by their predictions of what a court will do, the resource constraints under which their office labors. If there's an arrest and prosecution, the judge will apply the code. 
that they'll do so in a manner that's sensitive to the institutional environment in which they work and perhaps without regard to the constraints faced by the officer and the prosecutor. And the code may not determine the outcome of the case. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody can do everything that they want, but it does mean that to the extent that they're constrained, these actors are not constrained by a single norm that we call law. We can say they all respond to the law in different ways, but I think that's kind of hand-wavy and that we should own the fact that if it be a fact, modern governance structures are complex and generate a variety of relevant reasons for actions, some of which are stronger than others and none of which we can cleanly classify as legal versus extra-legal. So do you think that your illuminativism is consistent with broader theories of positivism then, or is it a version of positivism? So interestingly enough, I I mentioned the realists. Um, The realists were broadly, when it came to identifying the existence of legal norms, positivists. However, what we remember about them is largely not that. It's their claim that actually in wide areas of law, there are no norms and we don't have law. Um, And to the extent that I think that their eliminativism was compatible with positivism in the sense that they were able to identify areas in which the norms applied um, and also identify areas in which they did not, it was precisely because they had a theory of law that says if we have law, we will have convergent practices of public officials that follow follow authoritative sources that enable them to identify the fact that we in wide areas of law, we did not have that. So I think that there is a way in which any eliminativist theory of law has to depend at some level upon a theory or you know, a plausible range of theories of law such that we can say in a particular context, we don't have this. Um, we don't have this in the sense that this is um, uh, this is the, the essential properties that natural lawyers say are required of all law. We don't have this in the sense of, you know, the institutions, the secondary and primary rules uh, that govern official conduct in the way that positivists say. We need to have theories of law to say that there is no law. Um, but do we need to have, in a very broader sense, law to have social order of, of any kind? I think that that's a separate and um, and a deeper question that uh, no theory of law is going to tell you the answer to. Well, Evan, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It was a real pleasure talking to you about this fascinating paper, which I'm going I'm going to have to reread because I only I only caught part of it the first time around, and even the conversation just let me left me wanting more. So thanks a ton, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Well, thanks to you, Brian. This has been a lot of fun. And if any further thoughts come to mind, I'd be glad to do it again. For Johnny, be careful, whose mother and father are busy all day, whose father and mother and sister and brother say, Johnny, be careful when you are at play. Dear little children, as you play these records, you'll also find songs here for Mary, beware. And they say to Mary, be wise and be wary. 
And mother will never have gray in her hair. Each little song is a song with a lesson, and this is the kind of a lesson we mean. Stop, look, and listen when traffic lights glisten, and only cross streets when the red turns to green. Don't talk to strangers and don't play with matches. These new little songs know the right from the wrong. So learn while you're singing and sing while you're learning, and you will grow up to be healthy and strong.